Truth Espresso, episode 241. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike, this is your host, Daniel Minnick, and I have with me my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea, and we are back. Chelsea is back with me, and we are also back to talk about revivals, and we are going to start the little series within that series about the second Great Awakening. We talked about the first Great Awakening in the 1700s and the characteristics and figures involved there, the historical background for that. And so now we're going to get into kind of summarizing and laying the framework and the characteristics for what is known as the second Great Awakening that took place in the 1800s mostly and so sweetheart you're ready to talk about a second revival yes i think so (laughs) yeah i know the first great awakening is often the most well-known it's uh the characters are the most familiar and some of their iconic sermons and who can forget jonathan edwards george whitfield and john wesley Mm -hmm. but when it comes to like the second great awakening we know more about some of the historical events and movements that were going on at that time more so than a lot of specific about some of the figures involved, but one of the most prominent figures at the time, which, of course, we'll have at least a good episode uh, talking about him, that most people recognize is Charles Finney, but we'll talk about some other figures, too, as we do this series on the Second Great Awakening. So, sweetheart, as you're looking at just trying to gather some thoughts for study up and prepare for talking about the second great awakening there any thoughts that you had anything that stood out to you about the time frame and things like that so we know the second great awakening kind of spans a few years (laughs) and (laughs) some say like as early as like the 1790s But most of the more prominent figures and events that took place, I guess, during that time was more in the 1800s. And you just think about like some of the stuff that we're going through that had happened around there were post-Revolution War and we have the amendments like, you know, the First Amendment was something that was really kind of a turning point in some of the culture that we see that led up to Second Great Awakening because of the separation of church and state and how they really took that to heart thinking, okay, religion has no place in politics. 
And as I was reading that some people were saying that's kind of where the downfall started to come into play and where the culture just started kind of falling apart. People were just mean to each other. They were accusatory. They were just divided across the board on lots of different things. And they think that that division had to do with how people were like, okay, Christ and politics don't go together. I know that there were political movements, like social concerns that were coming out during these revivals of the Second Great Awakening. But yes, as you said, there's that separation of church and state. Now there's some aspects of that statement That statement originally came from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists proclaiming that religion should be involved in the government, but that the government doesn't have authority over religion. And so we hear a lot of people today saying, you know, separation of church and state means that somehow the state has to protect me from the influence of your religious beliefs. And that's not the case, nor that someone's religious beliefs, such as, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill (laughs) and stuff like that should have no say in policy, which of course that's not true either, but basically the separation of church and state involved the idea that the government would not sanction a particular state religion. Mm. But so the government or a state government, especially, well, when it comes to the federal government, the First Amendment is a federal amendment. And so that was ensuring that the federal government, that Congress would not impose any particular religion upon any of the states because they largely had their own societies of religion. But that still doesn't mean that, you know, religious views can't influence public policy. Mm. So more independence of religion was coming out during these revivals. As you said, sweetheart, since this was mostly in the 1800s, well, particularly the earliest back you could go is that some might consider the start of the Second Great Awakening were some sporadic revivals around 1790, but most of them, the height of them were 1830 to 1840. But as far back as we could push this, this was after the War for Independence. And so now you have what's called the United States of America and not the colonies. And so there is a federal system in which all the states are compacted together and united states. And so that is going to influence also the expansion westward various factors, people, a lot of immigration, people moving to the United States, pioneers uh, moving west. And so you have Midwestern states being added. The population around this time basically grew sixfold. So booming population by uh, childbirth, expansion, immigration, converts, which I think it's interesting because some of the factors that played into how the culture was kind of going in the United States was influenced by the huge influx of immigration from Europe. Mm. And in Europe during this time, you had the Enlightenment period mm. and also called like the Age of Reason, 
where people were saying like, okay, logic and reason and science, all that is more important than religion. And that influence kind of started to come over here because we see this huge influx of people that were coming from that. And yeah, of course, that stuff is really important. But we see how God is logical. God Mm -hmm. created logic. He created reason. And so there isn't a one is better than the other. Like they actually go together because we see that in God's word. We see it in the study of science that God is a God of order and reason. Yes, definitely. So you are because, yes, Jonathan Edwards was kind of a student of logic and he had some influence from the early Enlightenment, you know, a hundred years before the Second Great Awakening. But he applied that to a heartfelt revivalist um, religion there. So he took the logic and reason and applied it to sermonizing the faith that he had kind of grown up with. Whereas as the Enlightenment grew into the rationalism, the 1800s, like German rationalism and so on like that, that was a shift more into religious liberalism and atheism and saying that logic is apart from God. So now, what was kind of the structure, the Christian sect's structure during this time compared with the time of the First Great Awakening? During the First Great Awakening, you had a lot of congregationalist churches, which were kind of also tied to the municipalities of the colonial settlements. So during the First Great Awakening, the colonies tied their local governments to the specific Christian denomination of those who settled the areas. So those who were church leaders were also mostly ones who voted in the town halls and set town policies. But during the Second Great Awakening, the link between church and state in that way was severing because towns could have groups of Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, and really none of that controlled the municipality. So the churches were becoming more free churches in that sense. Also, some Roman Catholics were moving to the United States at this time and settling in some existing towns. And then especially the denominations that were involved in revivals, they were wanting to make sure through their sermons that they were clearly distinguishing their beliefs from those of the Roman Catholics that were moving in too. The structure of religion was changing. Also, Kind of the theology was shifting a little because, you know, as we said, when we talked about John Wesley, for the first great awakening, and it's mostly organic that way, those who had settled the colonies, they kind of brought a reformed type theology there. And then, you know, you had some Anglican influence, but then you also had Congregationalist Presbyterian like influence. And so the revivalists at that time were having to deal with kind of both ends of that. Like, 
Okay, you had formalism in both Reformed groups and Anglican groups, and the revivalists, for the most part, held to a Reformed theology, but they were evangelizing and reviving the people there, whether they came from a stuffy formalism grown cold from Reformed groups or from the more formalistic sacramentalism of the Anglicans. When you get to the Second Great Awakening and you have the spread of Methodist groups, there's some Quaker groups, and you also had more Baptist groups by this time. You had Reformed Baptist groups, you also had General Baptist groups and stuff, so there's a lot more Methodism that was spreading but the theology of the Second Great Awakening was kind of less reformed, so more non-reformed. And then because of the social movements, because of industrialization and a lot of like merit involved in work and business and trying to deal with social issues like alcohol and slavery, that would seem to carry more into the theology there. So it seemed like it was drifting more toward a work-based salvation. So that seems to be one of the problems that I could see in the shift. So as listeners, whether you hold to a Reformed theology or a non-Reformed theology, you could recognize the good and the bad in any revival movements, as we're hoping that we make clear when we're talking about these. Like, every revival, every great awakening here had its historical issues, and whether the person or the thoughts, there's both good and bad. So we look at things with hindsight, and we see, you know, what did they have to deal with and what were they teaching and what were the consequences of things. I was also reading that some of John Calvin's influence was coming into this too as far as people believed like that their salvation was predestined so they didn't have any personal decision to make and that it was just like okay if you're predestined to go to heaven or to hell then it didn't really matter what they did because that was already known, so they just kind of lived however. And then during the Second Great Awakening, when the evangelists were coming through and saying like, okay, but salvation is a personal, individual decision that you make, and then people were starting to accept that as something like an individualized thing, then there's a change. And that's where I think that's neat when you see some of the revival looking at history and just how revival comes through is that it's usually when people recognize their individual sinful nature and that they need relationship and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and that that's something the church can't do for you. That's something your community or your allegiance can't do. It's something that you yourself individually has to do. And yeah. I think that's something that you saw in the first Great Awakening, you know, it's something that we'll see through the second Great Awakening too. So the situations with every revival is that people would become complacent or entangled in the world and also think that their standing in some way is based on the community of which they are members and the revival is to let them know like hey it's personal it's individual 
you start with yourself and your own personal need for salvation and revival and then things spring from there and not from to what family and what church do I belong to. And one thing that was encouraging about this time is that there was more recognition for women and a little more freedom was starting to bloom out of this time. They had more involvement in some of the revival activities and women also started to form the abolitionist groups, um, the temperance causes, and women started to just have more of an influence on the culture in this time. And you think about some of the great women that we read about in history during this time. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe? Oh, <laughs> Well, that yeah. would, that I guess that would be after, after after the Second Great Awakening, but influenced by it, I think. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of that okay. right now. Well, but we'll we'll find them as we talk about the figures, and yeah, so industrialization, as I said, changed some things because during the First Great Awakening, people were still more agrarian, and so both men and women for labors they would be on farms. But then now with industrialization and more urban dwelling for a lot of people, unless they were like moving to the Midwest, women would be mostly doing child rearing and housework at home and less work on farms. And so because of more focus on the home and children, then they had more of a desire to find fulfillment in participating in religious activities. And so women then had also the means by which to organize to and to form groups. And so the two main uh, social or political issues became key during the Second Great Awakening, which was the abolition of slavery and essentially the abolition of alcohol or the temperance movement. And I know putting those two issues together, you know, would probably cause a lot of people today to be like, wait, why do those have to go together? You know, <laughs> like a lot of people are like, sure, slavery's wrong, but abolishing alcohol? Like, why can't we have our alcohol while condemning slavery and stuff? But both of those were considered important during this time. And I know one of the problems, especially for the temperance, was the claim that, well, drinking water at this time wasn't really safe. You still had to drink alcohol to have a safe uh, beverage, uh, but there were efforts at this time to be able to make non-alcoholic drinks that were safer to drink. <laughs> I remember her name. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Susan B. Anthony. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm like, I just saw the book on her shelf recently. <laughs> But she was a great influence for helping gather signatures to um, abolish slavery oh, too, yes. and helped with some of the temperance groups. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of neat. I know there's a Susan B. Anthony movement today that's like a pro-life group and mm -hmm. stuff. So, I mean, I know she's considered like part of the first wave feminists and stuff so you have people today who'd be like yay i'm a feminist i you know i like susan b anthony and then you also have pro-life conservatives who like yeah she was against abortion so we like her and <laughs> yeah. 
Hello, I'm Melba Toast, host of Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women centered on Sola Scriptura, the doctrine that the scriptures are all we need for salvation and spiritual living. This podcast takes the popular evangelical women's ministry teachings and philosophies and compares them to scripture to show just how sufficient it is to thoroughly equip and train us to be women who glorify God in all we do, trust in Christ and all he has done, and to live out and proclaim the gospel day by day. So I hope you'll tune in to Thoroughly Equipped, which you can find on most podcast apps, Striving for Eternity's Christian Podcast Community, or look me up on the web at ttew.org. Now, we mentioned the United States of America, but even as the states united after the War for Independence, there would still be cultural differences, especially in the between the northern and southern states. And so, as you know from history, it didn't take long before there was a war between the north and the south, you know, less than a hundred years, basically, after the War for Independence. But as we mentioned, one of the issues at the time was abolition of slavery, and that wasn't really as well received in the South at this time. And abolitionists in the North would preach sermons from the Bible and publish them and mail them even to people in the South, showing here's why the Bible wants to treat people of all ethnicities as equals, and slavery is an evil institution. And then some people from the South, they'd either tweak those sermons, or they'd do their own sermons. I mean, some of them weren't necessarily like pro-slavery, but they weren't abolitionists either. They would try to do sermons and try to claim that, well, slavery is, like, at least the institution is the means by which we can educate, you know, the African Americans. And unfortunately, that's what they argued, but they're trying to claim the idea of the good Christian slave owner who's, you know, kind of taking it upon themselves to feed and clothe and house and educate African Americans. And so that's why we can't get rid of slavery and stuff like that. But this issue definitely created a rift between the northern and southern states. And yes, that was a big issue even for the revivalists. Now, as things were moving westward, the Midwest frontier revivals happened most often at camp meetings, and they would set up these kind of semicircle type structures so that they could fit a lot of people while they would have circuit riders come and preach at camp meetings. And the circuit riders mostly came from the Methodist movement, kind of thinking of Whitfield and Wesley, you know, that they would ride around. Wesley rode around more. Whitfield would walk a lot, too. But the circuit riders, during the Second Great Awakening, would memorize their sermons. If you think of Jonathan Edwards, he read a lot of his sermons, but the circuit riders of the Second Great Awakening would memorize them, and the reason that they did that was because they wanted to make sure they can use gestures, look at audience, kind of be peripatetic, walk around and maybe act out and stuff, but they wanted to be able to preach dynamically. And so, you know, that contributed to their evangelistic influence by memorizing 
memorizing sermons so that they can preach more dynamic in these camp meetings. So for some reason, this just reminded me of my great-grandma. Well, great-great-grandma. She was born in 1899, so after this time frame, but she immigrated over to the U.S. from Ireland, Mm -hmm. and her and her family actually traveled west in a covered wagon, and they would stop at Indian camps and tell the Indians about Jesus and stuff. Mm. So yeah, it just reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know Wesley in the first Great Awakening witnessed to Native Americans, but that was also a big thing during the second Great Awakening with the Westward Movement. Mm-hmm. The revivalists would also try to evangelize a lot of the Native American tribes there too. So North, South, Midwest revival was spreading across the United States. But one similarity between the first Great Awakening and the second is the New England area. So in uh, upper New York and bordering Canada there, they had during this time what was nicknamed the burned over districts. So where they had long and frequent and intense revivals, um, so much so that they would describe these events that they were like where people got burned or the revivals the events were on fire (laughs) (laughs) we think about okay you know it's hard for us to imagine today thinking of like new york as being like that (laughs) well they are on well i guess they're not on fire they're getting smoke from oh, the yeah. Canada <laughs> fires. But. Yeah, that's not what they meant, obviously, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> they desperately do need revival in the northeastern area there. And yeah, for yeah. sure. I know. It's sad to think of, okay, at this time, they were so on fire and just passionate about what Christ was doing in their lives and in their towns. And now it's totally the opposite there where people are trying to minimize or negate anything that has to do with Christianity or any type of right and wrong. So, I don't know. It's interesting to see how fast we can change as a people and neglect God's ways. As powerful and widespread as some of these revivals were, you know, eventually they fizzle out, unfortunately. And so there's always a need to pray to God, revive us again. Let's get to some of the figures that were involved in the Second Great Awakening. And I know we wouldn't be able to do each of them all justice, but we can name some of these names. So what sparked this series talking about revivals was when we started, there was a revival ongoing at the time. It has since ended. It was in February of this year at Asbury College. And where the college got his name was after a Methodist revivalist named Francis Asbury. So he he was one of these revivalists. And so eventually, you know, when we get to that time period where we can talk about about the Asbury Revival, it'll be enough in the past that we can look at it in a history book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then we also have Peter Cartwright, who's a a well-recognized name there, and of course the most well-known name involved in the Second Great Awakening is a controversial figure by the name of uh, Charles Grandison Finney. 
And so he's someone that usually people like he has his very loyal followers or his very harsh critics. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think what we're going to take in our series is to look at both the good and the bad. We're neither going to be one or the other (laughs) as we try to be in these episodes. And so we'll see, you know, he did lots of good, you know, to admit He was a staunch abolitionist. And then we'll also see some of the things he said in his very popular book on revival that kind of leaves you scratching your head and raising your eyebrows like, really? (laughs) (laughs) So a few names I saw when looking at this was Timothy Dwight, which is kind of cool because he's the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) So Timothy Dwight was the president at Yale University and during the Second Great Awakening, he was teaching classes on like theology, faith, and church history. And he noticed an interesting change in his students when he would talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he was like, huh, this is interesting. And in particular, the next name I'll mention is Nathaniel William Taylor, who was one of Dwight's students. Nathaniel went on to teach about salvation and that it's a personal decision and it's the individual's responsibility to choose faith in Jesus Christ. So it's neat to see how there's just kind of that lineage there going down from Jonathan Edwards and his grandson and then, you know, the student that his grandson taught just... Wow, people that continue their faith and you think about the scriptures, they tell us like teach your children, teach your grandchildren. Like there is this reason that God tells us this because you're not going to, I mean, Jonathan Edwards was soon going to pass away, like, but he taught his children and his children taught his grandchildren. So there's a heritage. Yeah, because Jonathan Edwards was also a grandson of Solomon Stoddard, who kind of started revivals in the early colonies. So you have that lineage, grandfather to grandson to grandson. And, <laughs> and then one other name that I saw, I didn't really read too much about him yet, but it was Lyman Beecher. Yeah, recognize the name. Oh, yeah. And then there's uh, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. So they were originally Presbyterians, but eventually they left the Presbyterian church and they started what is known as the Stone Campbell movement. And they did some revivals, but I know their kind of theology that they introduced, their soteriology ultimately led to various Stone Campbell denominations, one of which you might recognize is the Church of Christ. (laughs) And so, yeah, they, they kind of evolved into the modern day churches of Christ. So during the revivals of the Second Great Awakening, you would also have kind of faux revivals, <laughs> you know, because then you have things like the Latter-day Saints movement with Joseph Smith, uh, who came out because he, in his first vision, claimed that God the Father and God the Son, he saw both of them, even though no one can see God the Father in his core essence, you know. But he asked God the Father, you know, basically what denomination what church should I join? And his claim is that God told him they're all corrupt, you know, so basically he had to start or recover the true church, the true early church, which ultimately believes in multiple gods and multiple planets of men become gods and all that stuff. 
Then you also had William Miller, who started the Millerite movement around the same time too. He was a he was a Baptist preacher, and we we could have lots of episodes on Millerism and what they eventually created. But he, there was a lot of investment at this time of being ready for Christ's coming, and so William Miller, in reading Daniel's uh, prophecy, came up with the idea that Jesus was going to return in 1843 and eventually to change it to 1844 and you had the great disappointment and you eventually had the Adventist movement and there's like dozens and dozens of different splinter groups of the Millerite movement which you know ultimately today you know you have the Seventh Day Adventists and you also have the Watchtower Jehovah's Witnesses that came out of that but which, if you want to learn more about Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> you and your brother. Oh, yeah. My brother and I, you know, wrote a book that we released in 2021. It's called When the Watchtower Knocks, Discussing an Encounter with Jehovah's Witnesses. And so, <laughs> yeah, we can thank the Second Great Awakening. No, I was kidding. <laughs> we can thank some figures who, living in the time of the Second Great Awakening, for ultimately creating Jehovah's Witnesses, which ultimately results in the book, When the Watchtower Knocks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting looking at both the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening, how there are a lot of similarities. And I know you pointed this out earlier. And I really liked what you said that the theme of falling away from truth or just becoming complacent and not taking eternity seriously or not valuing what we have learned from our parents and our grandparents and passing that down. Like there's just this kind of go with the flow mentality. And I think in the book of Psalms, chapter 51, it talks about like not having that complacency because if you do, then sin creeps in easily and it will corrupt you from the inside out. And so Psalms 51, 9 through 10, it says, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Good verses there. And somehow I, in my notes, I didn't do the full range or specify as <laughs> verses 9 through 13. And I noticed from King David's prayer there, because he's acknowledging his iniquities to God, and he's praying to God to create in me a clean heart and renew a spirit within me and recognize revival starts in our own heart. And it also recognizes our dependence on God. God revive me. I'm praying to you, God. I'm falling on my face depending on you, God. Please uh, revive my heart. Change my heart. And I recognize, you know, you're the one who saves. You're the one who upholds me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And recognizing once with revival and the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and helps us to realize, you know, our position in Christ 
Once we get that taken care of, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. And so that's the formula for revival. We revive ourselves individually from the inside, and then it works its way out. And I think, uh, you know, that helps recognize as we're looking at revivals, even to think of when we get to whatever claims to be a revival, you know, either in the past or the present or the future, we can evaluate according to how the Bible describes revivals. Because if a revival is just an emotional gathering of people, or if it's just like, okay, well, here's some kind of social cause, and we just have to preach to people follow these ways without really realizing that they have to have an inward change of the heart. The Holy Spirit and acts, you know, it's not just turning over a new leaf and it's not just join our movement. It's personal, individual relationship with Jesus via the Holy Spirit that then works its way out. And the outworking the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of any social cause or charity or, you know, whatever is involved as the fruits of revival, it's only truly such if it begins with a personal salvation or revival of the heart. Mm, I love that. You explained <laughs> that beautifully. Yeah, that's kind of our litmus test for evaluating revivals. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode. And as we gave the background, the characteristics, some of the figures involved in the Second Great Awakening, we hope that you will stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and more episodes in this series as we dive into some of these figures and some of their history, their life, and things that they taught. And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey, friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 